we continue our study through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians here on Sunday morning, thinking about the theme of closer, drawing closer to the Lord and drawing closer to one another. It's our theme for this year, and, and the letter to the Corinthians is a great one to study because this is a letter to a church that really needed to draw closer to the Lord and to one another. So we're looking at this book, and uh, today we're looking at verses of chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. But before that, let me read you a quotation. When we hear the ancient bells growling on a Sunday morning, we ask ourselves, is it really possible? The bells ringing for a Jew, crucified 2,000 years ago, who said he was God's son, the proof of such a claim is lacking. Certainly, the Christian religion is an antiquity projected into our times from remote prehistory. A god who begets children with a mortal woman. A sage who bids men work no more, have no more courts, but look for the signs of the impending end of the world. A justice that accepts the innocent as a vicarious sacrifice. Someone who orders his disciples to drink his blood. Prayers for miraculous interventions. Sins perpetrated against a God, atoned for by a God. Fear of a beyond to which death is the portal. The form of the cross as a symbol in a time that no longer knows the function and ignominy of the cross. How ghoulishly all this touches us, as if from the tomb of a primeval past. Can one believe that such things are still believed? So said Friedrich Nietzsche, the great nihilistic, atheistic philosopher. And when I read those words from Nietzsche and others like them, I uh, am reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, which we studied last Sunday, where Paul said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to Frederick Nietzsche. He, he heard it, he got the message, he understood it, and he said, that is ridiculous. Can we really believe that such things are still believed? I mean, how, how do people believe this? He just didn't understand it. But the reality is that our culture and our world, in all ages, in all times, will always consider the message of the cross and its implications, foolishness. It, it may not be as, as blunt and hard as Nietzsche put it. It may not be that kind of an overt rejection of the gospel and its implications, but, but it comes out in other ways. It often comes out not so much as a rejection of the gospel outright, but more a sort of a bewilderment that, that people would let the gospel shape their lives. You know, this is how it comes out. It's like, uh, you know, you you go talking to your girlfriend, and and she's um, you know kind of opening up a little bit about your marriage and just how it's hard and you're struggling right now. And your girlfriend says, "I don't know why you're putting up with that jerk. Just dump him, be done with it, divorce him. You deserve to be happy. You know why are you spending another day not being happy? You got to be happy in life. And so you need to do whatever you need to do to meet your needs and to be happy." And she just couldn't understand why you would continue to labor and struggle in a relationship and how your faith would inform that. And it's sort of like, what kind of faith is that? That's really weird. 
Or maybe uh, you're a junior high student or a senior high student, and you know, the kids are like, what'd you do last weekend? And you say, oh, I was with my youth group, and we went to Camp Cod. People are like, Camp what? No, Camp Cod. It's our church you know, camp. We do it every year. We learn about you know, Jesus, and we worship. And, and kids are kind of looking at you going, okay. You know, but in their minds, they may be thinking, why would you go there? You know, there was a party on Saturday. Why were you there on Sunday morning? Isn't Sunday morning for hockey? I mean, isn't that when we play soccer? Isn't Sunday morning for sports? I mean, why would you be in church? That doesn't make any sense. And so, so even though people may not pull a Nietzsche and say, ah, that's ghoulish, and, and so articulately lambast the Christian faith, it seems strange to the world that we would not only believe the gospel of Jesus, but then we would let the gospel of Jesus shape our lives in the way we live day in and day out. And sometimes it even causes us to doubt ourselves. Sometimes we even doubt ourselves. We start thinking, maybe this is weird. Maybe I am on the wrong side of this. Perhaps I bought a bill of goods, and, and this really isn't truth. Maybe this is foolish. Maybe I should... Be like the world. The world seems so slick and savvy and smart and, and cool and trendy and hip. And, and I I'm a, bought into this cross thing. Perhaps I am a fool. Maybe I've made a mistake. And so here's Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talking about the wisdom of the cross. And what Paul wants to do for us today in this passage is buttress our confidence that the gospel is in fact the wisdom of God. Because we doubt it, we struggle with it in this world. It's always out of step, regardless of the culture or the time period, whether it's Frederick Nietzsche's time or our time or the the first century when Paul lived. The gospel will always be out of step. And so here's Paul. He he wants to to gin up up our faith in the gospel and say, no, no, it's not foolish. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. You know, chapter 2, verse 6, he says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. You might think if, if you were here last Sunday that the gospel might be foolish because in chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul was just driving home again and again how foolish the gospel seemed. You remember last Sunday if you were here? He said it's a foolish message delivered to foolish people in a foolish manner, right? And you think, well, wait, gee, Paul, you're not doing a very good sales pitch here. I, that seems... You want me to believe that? Why are you saying that? In fact, I had someone come up to me after uh, services last Sunday. He said, I got a bone to pick with you about your sermon. I was like, oh, good. I never get that. Go ahead. So, you know, you know more, more, more. You know, I, I need pushback. It's great. It's good for me. And, uh, and, and he said, you kept saying that the gospel is foolish, but it's not foolish. And, and so I was, like, I was like, yeah, you need to come to next week's sermon. <laughs> because this is the other side of that coin. Yes, from the world's perspective, the gospel is foolish. But Paul's like, but just so you don't, don't misunderstand me, it's not foolish. Just from the world's perspective, it's foolish. But it's actually the wisdom of God. And I'm actually speaking a message that, that is the true way of life, that, that is life, it's wisdom, it's the way to, to function in God's world. So he says in verse 6, we do speak a message of wisdom. So in order to kind of bolster your faith in God's wisdom in the gospel and bolster your confidence in it, we're going to listen to what Paul has to say here. And Paul has three major things in verses 6 to 16 that he wants to tell us about this wisdom from God. He wants to 
to show us three primary things about the nature of this wisdom and maybe help us understand a little bit why it's not accepted in the world uh, broadly and widely. And, and so the first one is this. Here's the first point he wants to make, and you find this in verses 6 to 9. The first point is this. God, by and large, has hidden his wisdom and hidden the wisdom of the gospel from the world. God has concealed the, the beauty of the gospel and the, the wisdom of its implications from the world so that the world cannot see it. Verse 6 is, let me read verses 6 to 9. He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So God has hidden and concealed his wisdom from the world by and large. Some people he's spoken it to. Again, go back to verse 6. Paul says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. So there are some people who get it. There are some people who understand that the gospel is awesome, that the gospel saves, and that the gospel should radically change the way we live our whole lives, that we should live cross-shaped lives. And the people who understand that are who? The mature. Now, what does he mean by mature? Does he just mean like people over 40? Or, you know, and if you're below 40, you're not going to get it. But then you get older and you get wise. Now, mature here in this context, in the context of 1 Corinthians, means a spiritually mature Christian. A spiritually mature Christian. Who is a person who not only treasures the gospel message, but says, that is the way to live. A spiritually immature Christian is a person who believes the gospel message as the way you get saved, but hasn't really come to understand that the gospel message also shapes how you live. You know, for the spiritually immature Christian, the gospel that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again, that gospel message for the immature Christian, it's kind of like the golden ticket in Willy Wonka. You know, where he gets the golden ticket and he gets to go into the chocolate factory. And so for some people, the gospel's kind of like, yay, that's the ticket that gets me to heaven. It's like... Yes, the gospel is our salvation, but the gospel also is how we live between now and when we get there. So the cross isn't something we believe only to save us. Yes, it is, but it's also then the call to take up your cross and follow him. And the wise person says, wow, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's not only how you get saved, that's the way to live. So you live a cross-shaped life marked by humility love for others, a desire to sacrifice for the good of others, a willingness to take my preferences, my desires, my agenda, and put it down so that the needs of others might be lifted up, a willingness even to forego exercising my rights. We're all about our rights. I want my rights. But the gospel-minded person says, you know, I worship a Savior who gave up his rights so that I might be saved. You know, I need to give up my rights if it will help somebody else grow in the gospel. So it's a radical, upside-down way of living. It's what Paul talked about in, in uh, we'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or rather 13, where he says, love is patient, love is kind, 
Love does not boast. Love does not envy. And we read that like it's some sort of kind of wonderful wedding poem. But really what it is is it's a rebuke. He's saying, you Corinthians, you haven't figured out how to become mature. You, you haven't sort of deployed the gospel as a mode of living and relating. You're not mature yet. You just think the gospel is your Willy Wonka golden ticket. But it's so much more. So mature people get it. They understand this message of wisdom. But the world at large does not. As he says in verse 7, or verse 6, the wisdom of the, this age is not that kind of wisdom or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, verse 7, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden. So, so that's our point. Is the, the first point that Paul wants to make is that the, the gospel and its wisdom and the, the awesomeness of it and the glory of it has been hidden from the world. The world hears the gospel and thinks about a gospel-shaped life and goes, huh? What? You know? No, no, it's all about you. It's all about you being happy. It's all about meeting your needs and protecting your rights and standing up for yourself. That doesn't make sense to be a cross-shaped life. That sounds like being a doormat. And the world doesn't understand it because it's been hidden by God. God has kind of like shut the world off so that the world can't see it and can't get it. Now, why would God do that? Why did he do that? That sounds kind of mean. Why wouldn't he tell people that? It's his judgment upon a sinful world. We live in a sinful and wicked world. We live in a world that has said, I'm God, and I will do what I want, believe what I want, live how I want, uh, create my own spirituality, create my own religion, uh, or not, or be Nietzsche, or be whatever, but, but I'm going to do it on my terms. That's the heart of sin, is a rejection of God. You know, we just sang, behold our God seated on his throne, and the world says, I don't want a God on a throne. <laughs> I want God, you know, who's more like AAA, like he'll come get me if I need some help, but I'm going where I'm going, I'm driving where I'm driving, you know, God can bail me out maybe, but it's about me and my agenda, and I'm setting my own course. No one's going to tell me where to go. We don't like a God on a throne. And it's that fundamental rejection of God that has brought us into his judgment. Our world, our world is under the judgment of God. And it's coming like a tsunami against this world. And it's already begun in the fact that God has shut off wisdom so that people can't find it now. You know, it's like any relationship that's broken. You know, you have a broken relationship. We talked about husband and wife, or it could be boyfriend, girlfriend, or maybe it's two best friends who grew up together, or maybe it's you and your kids, or, or you and your parents, or whatever. And, and when there's a rupture in the relationship, it's a hard thing. I mean, some of us here, you know, are not on speaking terms with somebody because there's this brokenness. And maybe that brokenness is because the person sinned against you, and you're just like, I can't go there. Or maybe it's because you sinned against them, and, and so they're like, that's it, I'm done. And, and it's really hard. And, and, you know, one of the hard things about a ruptured relationship is there's no communication. It's only just yes and no's, or talk to my lawyer, or, you know, you know unfriend me on Facebook. There's no communication. It, it doesn't go both ways. And that is the situation with this world and with us, with God, is that we have rejected God as the king. We would become our own gods and our own kings and treat God like AAA, and therefore it's broken. So no wonder we're not getting communication. No wonder he's hidden it from us. 
He's cut us off because that's what we chose. That's what we deserve for our sin. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if when you go around talking about the gospel and a gospel-shaped life, if you get blank stares and weird looks. It, it doesn't mean you're crazy or that you've done something foolish. It, it's been cut off, and, and the world can't understand it. God has hidden it from this world. He has, as it says there in verse 7, concealed it. But for those who love him, for those who do have that relationship, we, we get it. You know, verse 9, However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And so if we love him, there's something that he's got in store for us. But it's not something the world gets. It's not something the world can anticipate. You know, I, I'm, I'm excited for eternal life. I'm excited for heaven. I'm excited for what God has in store. The world just doesn't understand that because it's been cut off from the wisdom of God. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. You should anticipate being misunderstood. Not, not, not like it necessarily. It's not pleasant. But, but don't be surprised. If the world goes, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? No, 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 no. That's not the way to be. But that leads to a question, which then leads to Paul's second point. And here's the question. How then is it that anybody comes to understand the wisdom of the gospel? How is it possible then? So if, point number one, God has hidden and concealed the wisdom of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and the, the, the fact that the gospel makes so much sense from the world so the world can't see that, how then is it that some people do receive the message of the gospel? You know, he says there in verse 6, we speak a message to the mature. All right, how, how did that happen? How is that message there? And here's the answer, and this is the second point. The second point is God's Holy Spirit has revealed the wisdom of the gospel through the apostles of Jesus Christ. That's the second point in this passage. So point number one is, God, by and large, has hidden his wisdom from the world so the world doesn't get it. But in his kindness and in his mercy, God has, through the Holy Spirit, revealed his wisdom to the apostles, to to those 12 disciples plus Paul, to the apostles of Jesus Christ. They've received the wisdom. Look at verse 10. But, he says, God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God has, has broken that silence. So we have that broken relationship between us and God, and it's a standoff, and God has cut us off, and that's what we deserve. And yet God is merciful, he's gracious, he's kind, and even though we deserve to be completely cut off, he has broken the silence and made the first move to reconciliation by sending his Holy Spirit to communicate the fact and to show people that there actually is wisdom in God and in God's ways and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit is the one who knows these things about God. There's a great analogy there in verses 10 and 11. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. The Spirit can go way down into God and see what's going on inside of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You know, how do you know what's inside of a person? You don't. You look at a person, it's like penny for your thoughts. Like, what, what are you thinking? You know, I, I look out at you guys, and I wonder, what, am, what are you thinking? You know, 
I hope, I, I assume you're thinking, this sermon is riveting, but <laughs> you might not be. You, you, might, you might be thinking about something else as an outside chance that you're, you're, you know, your mind is wandering or you, you're all stressed out about something and you just keep thinking about that or you're worried or you're hungry. I mean, who knows? You, you, never, you know, someone looks at you in the face and they're looking at you nodding, but you don't know what's really going on in there. There's just no way to know a person's thoughts. But the spirit of the person knows what's going on in the person. Only the person knows what's going on in the person. And so Paul makes an analogy. He goes, that's how it is with God. The Holy Spirit of God knows the plans and purposes and and wisdom of God because the Holy Spirit is God, which is, this is a wonderful passage for showing the divinity of the third person of the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit really is God. It's part of why God's a Trinity. And, And so the Spirit knows God because the Spirit is God. And that Holy Spirit has revealed the wisdom of God to, verse 10, us. Now, who's the us in this passage? It's not us. The us in this passage are the apostles. If you go through, and I won't take the time to do it, but starting in chapter 1 and reading on through chapter 3, whenever he talks about us, he's talking about himself and the apostles. And when he talks about you, he's talking about the Corinthians. So, so what he's saying is that God's Holy Spirit has given revelation to the apostles so that they could understand the message of the gospel and why it's so great. You know, so this is what's been happening down through the centuries, is that God has been breaking the silence between us and him by telling people about this awesome plan he has to save sinners through Jesus. He started it in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit would speak to the prophets. And they would come to one of the prophets, and the prophets would get a little glimpse of Jesus or or some glimpse about what what God was doing. And and that prophet would have a little piece of it, another prophet would have a little piece of it. You know, when I read the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, it's kind of like watching movie trailers. You know, where it's like a two-minute clip of a two-hour movie and it just whets your appetite enough to want to see the movie. You know, The Hobbit's coming out in December. Without exaggeration, I think I've seen that trailer 15 times. Whenever I'm sad, I go to my happy place. (laughs) And I I took the the Hobbit trailer and I was like, you know, that's smog. Oh, that's awesome. And I get all fired up. And I can't wait to see, what's that movie going to be like? How are they going to handle Tolkien's vision of the Hobbit? And what are they, you know, what's he doing with it? And it's, that's how the Old Testament is. The prophets, the Holy Spirit would speak to the prophets and he would give them little trailers that are coming until finally the movie debuted and Jesus Christ was born. And Jesus Christ was the plan of God that the Old Testament was looking forward to. Jesus Christ is God's big solution to the sin and brokenness of the world. But here's the crazy thing, that as Jesus lived out his life and then was crucified and buried and even raised, the people who were right there watching the movie didn't get it. They were like, "Eh," you know, the Pharisees, who were experts in the movie trailers, the Pharisees were. They watched the movie in front of them. They're like, no, that's not the movie. That's not, you're not the Messiah. That's ridiculous. Even the apostles we're sitting there watching the movie, and they're the guys who believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, so I'm going to tell you what's going to happen later on in the movie. Spoiler alert. All right? The Son of Man is going to be handed over 
And they're going to mock him and kill him, and he's going to die, and he's going to rise in the third day. And the disciples are like, no, that's not how the story, ah, that's ridiculous. No, Jesus, you're not going to do that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know where I'm going. I, I, I have a, a story here. And even after Jesus was raised to the dead, you remember the story in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus? He meets up with a couple of the, the uh, disciples, and they're like, we don't know what's going on. He, he was dead, and then people say he rose. And what is that? We're confused. So finally, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on the disciples, and they go, oh, we get it. And, and through the Holy Spirit, they connect the life of Jesus, the events of Jesus, with all the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. It's like, you know, kids here, you guys seen Finding Nemo? And, and you know, in Finding Nemo, when Dory who's like this kind of clueless fish who can't remember anything. She has short-term memory problems. Long-term. And so she's always clueless. And then at the end of the movie, something happens, and she suddenly realizes that Nemo is Nemo, and she has this, like, she remembers the whole movie in reverse. And suddenly she's like, oh, I, you're Nemo, and it all clicks. And that's like the disciples. They have this, this moment like that where everything they've seen about Jesus and everything they knew from the Old Testament comes together in a, a sonic boom of understanding. And they realize it. The Holy Spirit helps those apostles to understand who Jesus is and why God sent Jesus and what he came to do and why that should change our lives so radically. Even Paul. How did Paul find this out? He wasn't one of the 12 apostles. Well, one day he was going to Damascus and Jesus made a personal visit. And he showed up and and Paul encountered the risen Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit taught Paul the gospel and its implications so that all of the apostles could say, we have seen Jesus and the Holy Spirit has made it known. And then you know what the apostles did? They went out and preached it and taught it. And then before they died, they wrote it down. So our scriptures in the New Testament are the Holy Spirit communicated truths to the apostles written for us so that we can read it. It's awesome. So now we have the wisdom, we have an access point for the wisdom of God. If, if we want to know why the cross is awesome and what it means and what it means for our lives, the Holy Spirit's interpretation of that has been given to the apostles and written for us. It's so awesome. So we need to be people of the word whether that's on a Sunday morning, I mean, that's just the start. We need to be people who read the Word and not just read the Bible because, well, I'm a Christian. I guess I've got to read this Bible. But, but no, no, we're reading it looking for wisdom. Saying, I want to know more about the gospel. I want to know what it means for my life. I've got all these situations in my life, all these challenges. I do have difficult relationships, and I have financial struggles. And there's this person at church that's driving me crazy, and I'm thinking about leaving the church because that person, and you know, whatever. And you've got all these issues in your life And now we can start looking at God's Word saying, God, give me gospel wisdom. How should the cross affect the way I think about my whole life and what it's all about? And that wisdom is there. But you know that raises another question, which leads to the third point that Paul wants to make. And the other question is, okay, so God has broken the silence and through His Holy Spirit revealed His gospel wisdom to us through the writings of the apostles. So why is it then that more people don't buy it today? 
Why is it more people don't believe it? Why is it more people don't accept the gospel message? I mean, we have it. It's written down, right? So, number one, God has hidden the wis- his wisdom from the world. But, number two, God has graciously revealed it through his Holy Spirit to the apostles. So, why is it then that more people don't just read the, the Scriptures and say, wow, the wisdom of God? Why is it that you have all the Nietzsche's in the world? who read the Scriptures, they understand the basic message, and they're like, that's ridiculous. Why is that? And that leads to the third point that Paul wants to make for us, and that is that you've got to have the Holy Spirit yourself to receive the message. So it's not just that the Holy Spirit is communicating the secret things of God, but I have to have the Holy Spirit in order to receive God's wisdom and for me to go, Oh, I get it. That's awesome. I want to live this and believe it and follow him. The Holy Spirit is, helps us to receive the wisdom and not only transmits the re- wisdom. He's the transmitter and the receiver. Look at verse 14. Paul says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't accept the truths of the Spirit that he's communicating. They're going to seem strange to you. And in verse 14, he cannot understand them. There is an, an inability apart from the Holy Spirit to truly believe and trust and live out the gospel. You just can't do it. You know, God is, is communicating, but unless we're receptive, we can't. You know, that's another part of sin. Again, I talked about that, that broken relationship between us and, us and God. From God's side, that comes across as judgment. He's withholding truth from people who rejected him. But on our side, it means that we, because of our sin, are now unable to hear from God. We've kind of like shot ourselves in the spiritual ear, so to speak. And we can't hear God anymore. And we just kind of hear ourselves. And so we create our own spirituality. We create our own religion. We're in the echo chamber of ourselves. But we're not hearing from God. We're just hearing ourselves talk. And, and it's to our own destruction. And so without the Holy Spirit, you, you can't hear the things from God. You've got to have the Holy Spirit. You know, I'll, I'll use an analogy. It's like, it's like Wi-Fi. Right? You know Wi-Fi, there's a, there's a modem sending the information. That's the Holy Spirit. He's communicating gospel wisdom. The Holy Spirit is trying to tell us about God and who God is. Uh, And and so God's truth is going out through his word. Here's the modem, and and you can read it, and God's truth is coming out, and the wisdom of the gospel is coming out. But, But it doesn't work unless the person receiving it has what? Some kind of Wi-Fi card, right? If if you don't have a Wi-Fi receiver... It doesn't matter how loud and strong the message is. You, you've got to have something in you that receives it. You know, that, that's the difference between an iPad and a dishwasher. <laughs> right? Dishwasher, great. You know, toaster oven, wonderful. Can't receive Wi-Fi because it doesn't have the, the wiring, the hardware. And that's the difference between that and a smartphone or a tablet or a, you know, a computer is that it has the, the hardware to receive it. So without the Holy Spirit, the gospel's not going to make sense to you. It's always going to seem kind of weird and strange. And why do people get all fired up about this? And I guess it's kind of nice, but 
I don't know. I don't want to get, it seems like people get overboard about the gospel and what's all this Jesus business and I don't want to become a doormat. Why would I become like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And it's always going to be like that unless the Spirit of God indwells us. And, and, and so you have to have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. You know, Paul said, you know, whoever has the Spirit has Christ. Whoever does not have the Spirit of God does not have Christ. A real Christian, in a biblical definition of that word, a real Christian has the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. You say, am I really a Christian? I don't know. Do you have the Holy Spirit? If, if you've been born again, that's what that means to be born again, is to have God's Spirit come into you and change you to give you Wi-Fi capability and, and, and change your orientation of your heart so that you want to submit to God and you want to hear from God, then, yeah, you, you have to have that. And if you don't, then you, it's never going to make sense. And you say, well, what if, I, what if I'm not sure? What if I, I don't think I have the Holy Spirit? That, is, that sounds weird to me. I don't, I don't even know if I'm born again. What do I do? What do I do? <sighs> Cry out to God. Say, God, just change my heart. I, I, I want to know you. I need you to change me. God, my sin is so deep that it's not just that I did some bad things in my life that I regret, but my sin is so deep that, that it's made me the kind of person who can't even hear you. Oh, God, I'm a mess. Just rewire me. Send the geek squad. And change me. And change my heart. And make me a person who knows you. Oh, Lord, I want your Holy Spirit. Cry out to God for mercy. God loves to turn dishwashers into tablets. He does it. That's what it means to become a Christian. You go from being a, a toaster oven to a, right, to a computer. And you can get the information from him. So the spiritual man, verse 15... So there's the person without the Spirit, then there's the person with the Spirit, the spiritual man. And, and when Paul says spiritual, he doesn't mean it at all like the way people say, I'm spiritual today. We've talked about this before, and I, w I won't belabor this point. But when Paul says spiritual, he doesn't mean it like most people, you know, I, I sit on the beach at, you know, 6 a.m. in the lotus position and hold up a crystal, I'm spiritual. Paul would say, no, you're not spiritual. Spiritual means you have the Holy Spirit. Right? So the spiritual person can discern these things. The spiritual person can receive these things. Verse 15, the spiritual person makes judgments, or you might translate that, investigates or makes inquiries. The, the, the spiritual person can, can learn about the gospel and apply it to their life. The spiritual person can be upgraded spiritually to, to become more and more like Jesus. The spiritual person can ask questions and about the gospel, and God's Spirit through His Word answers those questions and changes us. You know, that's the great thing about Wi-Fi, is that once you're connected, it goes both ways, and you can, you can talk to the Lord, and He can change you, and there's a, an ongoing relationship, and He can update your software, and he can, he can make you more and more like Christ over time, and, and you can become a more gospel-shaped person. He can help you become more forgiving more selfless, more gracious, more other-focused. It's awesome what he can do. And so the person with the Holy Spirit, as he says in verse 16, has the mind of Christ. 
That explains why Paul is so frustrated with the Corinthians. (laughs) Because they should be more mature by now. He's looking at the Corinthians, and he's like, okay, God's revealed his wisdom. Those who have the Holy Spirit can get it and can learn more. The Corinthians have the Holy Spirit. So Paul's looking at these Corinthians, and he's going, so why aren't you more mature by now? That's the problem with the letter to Corinth is that, you know, Paul's like, there's two types of people. There's people who have the Holy Spirit, who hear the Spirit and grow in the Spirit, and there's people who don't because they haven't been born again. But he's like, you Corinthians are like some weird middle thing where you have the Spirit, you are God's people, but you're just not growing. You're like stuck being babies like when you first became Christians. I don't want to go too much into chapter 3, verses 1 to five, one to 4. We're going to look at it next Sunday, but look, just look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. So here's where, here's where all the frustration comes out. So Paul's done this huge thing about the wisdom, and now all the frustration just boils over in chapter 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. That's way back when he first... Preach the gospel there. Yeah, when I first came, I told the gospel, you guys were babies, you're new Christians, I get it. But now, indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly, for there's jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? So he looks at the Corinthians, and he's like, by now, you guys, you, you guys have the Holy Spirit. You should be more and more like Jesus. There should be more humility and love and self-sacrifice and honoring others that the the operating system of Jesus should be upgraded, but it's not. You know, like, hey, guys, iOS 7 is out, and you're still functioning on iOS 1, Corinthians. Why haven't you upgraded? Why aren't you further along in your faith? You're acting like people who don't have the gospel. You know, you're you're selfish, and you're arrogant, and you're self-promoting, and yeah, you've got all these spiritual gifts. You know, you can speak in tongues and you can prophesy. But, and you think that makes you spiritual? That doesn't make you spiritual because you don't act like Jesus. So who cares if you can speak in tongues and prophesy? You guys got to love each other. That's real spirituality is to be like Christ. And, and so he's like, why are you guys so self-promoting and so arrogant and so critical and so judgmental and so quarrelsome with each other? When, when I see the, this church, Corinth, and I see you like that, it tells me you haven't been growing. You have Wi-Fi access and you haven't done anything with it. That's kind of scary, isn't it? So what this means is you can be a Christian for 10, 15, 20 years and still be immature in your faith. You can be a Christian a long time and still be acting like a worldly baby. That's really sobering, especially for those of us like me who have been walking with Jesus by his grace for many years. And I think, well, I'm a pastor now. Well, I have these spiritual gifts. Well, you know, I've been a Christian for all these years. I must be mature. I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Because spiritual maturity, as Paul's defining it, isn't having certain talents and abilities and using them, even supernatural wow kind of abilities. Spiritual maturity is somebody for whom the gospel has changed them, 
more and more to be like Jesus in his other-centered love and self-sacrifice. That's real spirituality, a really spirit-filled person. And it's very challenging. And so my prayer for us as a church, I'll just share this prayer with you. It's what I've been praying for, really for myself, and then it's kind of spilled over to the church as well. But as I've, as I've been kind of getting my head around 1 Corinthians and what Paul is doing in this letter, my, my prayer is, God, just upgrade our faith. Upgrade our Christ-likeness in this church. Lord, just come to this church, and, and I just want God to like, like scoop out any gunk in this church that needs to get scooped out and gotten rid of so that we can grow in the Lord. For me, for you, is, is there junk in us that we're not addressing that we just think, oh, we're fine, we've been Christians for 10, 15 years? No, no, no. What, where's the immaturity? Where's the worldliness in us? Where, where does God need to scoop and clean and purge? We're sending a, uh, a missions team to Colorado in a couple of weeks to where they had all the flooding, and they're going to go to these houses that are filled with mud, you know, and muck out the houses. And that was just an image in me. Like, Lord, send a muck out team of the Holy Spirit to my heart, to our church. Don't let us stay stuck in iOS 2 when there's iOS 7. Don't let us stay stuck with the gunk of sin in our hearts that we've just kind of gotten so complacent with. Lord, do a cleansing work in our church. We pray for revival. That's great. But revival doesn't come until it's clean first. We need God to cleanse our hearts and cleanse our congregation so that we'd be a people who are listening to him and are maturing. Oh, Lord, send your Holy Spirit so that we might grow closer to the Lord and closer to one another. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need you. We confess our our immaturity. We confess our worldliness. And God, we just want more of you. And we pray, Lord, in our church that you would scoop out and clean out in each of our hearts, whatever that may be that needs to go. And God, I pray that for myself. Lord, I pray for spiritual uh, awareness, that we would be people who are tuning into you and are looking to grow in Christ's likeness and not just assuming that we're mature because we've been walking with you a long time. But God, we really want to grow. We really want to mature. Lord, I pray for anyone here who, who doesn't have the Spirit, that God, you would, this would be the day where you would send your Spirit to them and that all of the light bulbs would come on and that everything they've been hearing, maybe for years and years, would all suddenly click and there would be a sonic boom in their soul. Suddenly Christ crucified would be power and life and wisdom and that it would change them. Oh God, have mercy on us, we pray. I thank you, God, that you're so patient with slow learners like me, slow downloaders like me. God, we pray for more of your spirit in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.